This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. AWS invests in technology and innovations that support ambitious sustainability goals. Learn about AWS sustainability work at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. And this episode is sponsored by Schneider Electric. Let's face it, data-rich insights are fundamental to measuring ESG impact. Unravel scattered ESG data across your business with Schneider Electric's EcoStructure Resource Advisor. For more information, please visit resourceadvisor.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the UN's new deal to protect the oceans, helping banks and investors manage climate risk, how Europe's sustainability world views Ukraine one year on, and 10 badass women fighting for environmental justice. We're breaking the glass ceiling this week on 350. It's March 10th, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, getting ready to spring forward, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello there, Joel. Welcome back. It's great to have you uh, on the other side of the co-hosting mic. It's good to be back. I took a actual two-week vacation, no working vacation, one of my favorite oxymorons. Um, uh, and I had, it's been a while since I've been just off, off, off for two weeks. Uh, it was rather nice. Um, so uh, uh, back. Uh, thank you to uh, Jesse Klein and Leah Garden for joining you, Heather, on uh, as co-hosts of this uh, podcast the last couple weeks. And um, big week on a number of weeks. First of all, it's, uh, you know, we, we've well, a few weeks ago actually passed the, the one-year anniversary in Ukraine. And this week is the three-year anniversary of COVID. I mean, most people Oof. remember where they were on March 10th, 2020. Uh, I certainly do. And um, uh, and, and in that spirit, I actually, uh, we're going to play uh, an interview a little bit later. I did with James Murray uh, over at Business Green in the UK about sort of how Europe views those twin anniversaries, um, neither of which is worth celebrating, but both of which are, are, are noteworthy. And um, yeah, it's, uh, and then of course, uh, this week, was International Women's uh, Week? I uh, be International Women's Day. Day or week or month, I guess. In some cases, Women's and History Month, International Women's Day. <laughs> thank you for straightening me out on that. Uh, and we're going to talk in a sec about the great annual fifth annual piece that you did, Heather, on on badass women. Um, so uh, yeah, and uh, how how were you during my vacation? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yes. Well, I missed you. And uh, I'm good. I'm good. I've been just trying to lean into some stories that I'm, I'm starting to research and develop and have have a lot of things in the pipeline of which about which I am excited. So yeah, yeah. Well, I'm excited about some of the stories we covered this week. So let's get right to the week in review. 
And let's get right to the 10 badass women. This this year, Heather, you you centered your uh your 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 badass women's story on women in environmental justice. Uh, talk a little bit about what you found and and why you why that. Well, so why that? Why that is because I've been asking lots of our world, the sustainability professionals, about how they include climate justice and environmental justice in their work, because we know that it's uh, super important. We know that communities of color, communities that have um, lower socioeconomic, um, you know, status are often the ones that most impacted by climate change. They're the ones that get forced to deal with toxic chemical plants. I mean, they're just, the list is long. And so my question in my mind this time as I was making the selections was, okay, so if this is important um, for corporations to address, who within corporations, who, excuse me, who within corporations is addressing it? And I had a hard time, I have to admit, try, trying to find people. Uh, there's plenty of DEI experts that the companies have on their payrolls, but not a lot of folks that are fo- uh, centered on on the, this sort of intersection of climate action and environmental justice. So that was the rationale. And it was, like I said, it was hard. I just felt like it was an important thing to highlight. Well, l- let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Um, uh, why would companies have somebody whose job it is to focus on environmental justice? Partly because the sustainability initiatives that we see coming out often leave the voice of those communities out of the decisions. So we we often see companies come in and say, ooh, we're going to solve this problem, but they haven't actually talked to the communities that that, that, you know, they're trying to help, um, you know, so it, it's, many things are, um, many of these strategies are very well intentioned, but not very well planned, if you will. Um, and only by, I think, centering someone's job on this, are you going to have this kind of attention? This is kind of like at the beginning of sustainability, you know, and you're, you're well aware of this. We needed someone to be focused on this, to have it in their title, to be speaking with the rest of the people around them, to be putting this in front, um, of, of, of every decision maker, right? And having them know that it should be at least a factor in the decisions. It should be a factor in where you choose to put a, a where you choose to support a renewable power plant. Like if you're going to make if you're going to make a power purchase agreement, why are you making it in a community that is already benefiting? Why aren't you putting it in a community that doesn't have access to clean energy? Um, you know, as as some of the companies uh, on the list are doing. So. That is why. Uh, and it's just like, a, there's plenty of activists. I mean, I, I, I want to make it very clear that this list is not a list of activists. There are lots of activists focused on environmental justice. There are not a lot of corporate individuals who are focused on this. Yeah. Well, as always, and for the fifth straight year, this it's a great list. You've got uh, a couple of good friends of, of ours and mine, uh, Vien Trong uh, over at Nike, um, and uh, Michelle Moore, Groundswell, uh, who is not in the, in the private sector, but she has been working and developing uh, renewable energy, that uh, giving uh, access to, renew- to renewable energy to uh, poor communities and communities of color, uh, primarily in Appalachia, uh, doing 
terrific work. And by the way, I'd just love to plug her book called Rural Renaissance Revitalizing America's Hometowns Through Clean Power. It's, it, I read it. It's, it's really terrific. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then uh, people from, uh, from women from Microsoft, Toms of Maine, uh, Salesforce, um, you know, in some cases, and like he is, as I said, some cases it's the usual suspects. I, I think I understand that why this may have been challenging because uh, there aren't that many companies that we probably wouldn't expect. There's a couple, some some startups uh, and uh, or, or, or early stage companies. Then of course uh, WSP, the consultancy. But it, this it seems like it's uh, still a, a, a emerging. A role or emerging function within companies. Yeah, I just have to say, one of my, it is definitely, and I'm hoping that this list will make a lot of other folks raise their hand and reach out to me. So I'm like, that's part of it. Part of these lists are always to make the people not on the list reach out <laughs> and tell their stories, right? I mean, why like- Why wasn't it, I on the list? Yeah, why wasn't I on the list? But I have to say, one of the p people that I was most excited to learn about was Tanya Hicks. Um, Power Solutions. She's a, a longtime entrepreneur. Uh, she was the first, and I, I'm going to get the word wrong, is a journey woman. Uh, electric contractors uh, and electric electricians, there are not a lot of women, but she was the first black woman to become a journey, quote, man. I think that's the term in the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers in Mississippi. She's she had a double of a time finding um, people to take her seriously, so she started her own company. And now she's also um, focusing on helping um, other women train for these professions. So I, I was just, she was so inspiring. And then uh, Crystal Hansley, who's the founder and CEO of We Solar, uh, the first black woman to co-found and lead a community solar company. So I just, yeah, I, I hope I find a lot more and I'm. it was just a joy to do this. List. Well, the whole list is inspiring, and and uh, although it may be uh, uh, not as many uh, candidates as we'd hope, it's a great down payment, if you will, on <laughs> on, on a list. And and yeah, uh, you you you, uh, I'll, I'll say your email address because you put it in the piece here, uh, Heather at greenbiz dot com. Uh, if you have uh, more candidates, or you are a candidate to uh, for for next year's, uh, uh, we're always looking for. Uh, who's badass uh, besides you, Heather. So <laughs> let's move over to another story that's uh, uh, sort of, but not exactly related, but it does have to do with uh, with jobs uh, in sustainability. And this is from Claudia Herbert Colfer, uh, who is a program manager at UN Global Compact, who wrote a piece about choosing between the public and private sector. And she says, why not both? Um, do you want to talk a little bit about this, set, up, set this one up? Well, first of all, I want to also recognize that Claudia was a 2022 30 under 30 for GreenBiz. And so um, awesome. Thank you for, for being a good collaborator, a, a faithful collaborator with us. And by the way, the nominations for the current list are open. So see the website, et cetera. Um, so this piece, and this is the nature of the UN Global Compact, I think, I mean, is, is to help companies work with the the public sector and help them be good collaborators in the public-private sense. Um, and so I loved her, uh, her sort of um, uh, argument about this. Her, her thesis was, you know, she she wanted to, she second-guessed herself in grad school. She So she was, you know, wanting to have a public sector career, but in grad school, it was like, hey, wait a minute, the business community really, really is important here. 
Um, and so she basically looked for a, a place where she could merge her two interests um, and really work at the intersection of public and private sectors to help with the sorts of collaboration. Um, and, and one of the things I thought I found interesting was her her focus on and sort of navigating and translating <laughs> the different expectations of uh, of the public and private sectors. You know, one one very obvious thing being just the the urgency with which companies sometimes need to act and the sort of more thoughtful, measured approach that government often takes. You know, they take longer. Um, so timelines can be a challenge. But, you know, she's it just was a um, uh, one of these pieces where you're like, oh, yeah, aha, you can do both. And so she, she is uh, considers herself to be um, at the intersection of- Yeah, bridge builder. Yeah, bridge builder. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, um, yeah, this is part of our higher H-I-R-E, higher learning uh, column series uh, curated, I still believe, by, by Jesse by Klein. Yep. Yeah, um, and, and, and it's really quite insightful. I just want to read a little bit here that I think is really interesting. She says that working in the public-private space teaches you how to teaches you to view both sides of the coin, understanding the different ways of operating, the various expectations, and the several goals that each stakeholder has. You learn how to prevent misunderstandings between both parties by finding compromises, setting real, realistic objectives, and establishing appropriate ways of working ahead of time. And anyway, and she says, even if this is to your point, uh, Heather, even if all parties involved speak the same language phonetically, you become a translator between <laughs> mm -hmm. both groups. I love that, uh, speaking mm -hmm. the same language phonetically. In other words, saying the same words, even though they may mean completely <laughs> yeah. different things. Um, Partnership. And, yeah. So yeah, I think this yeah. is a, a great, uh, thoughtful uh, piece that's, uh, again, sort of Looking at a space that uh, sort of, sort of like the badass women in, in environmental justice, that's underserved and and emerging, and um, uh, and needs to, to to have more attention. But let's shine some attention here on uh, I think one of the big stories of of the past. Well, it was actually uh, last week, but it really sort of starting to just sink in. No pun intended. And this is the the UN High Seas Treaty. Uh, to the historic deal to protect international waters that was signed by uh, 190 some uh, uh, countries um, that uh, now needs to be endorsed by those by those countries, but uh, is a real, I have to say it, sea change uh, in how uh, we think about um, uh, uh, oceans and protect the oceans, particularly the parts of oceans that are not. Within uh, that are in international waters that are not subject to uh, local uh, country jurisdictions. So, yeah, really, really interesting. Um, and, and and I want to bring forth, uh, you know, one piece of this. It, the the piece, and this this came from Celia Keating over at Business Green uh, in, in in the UK, um, that uh, isn't really highlighted in her piece, which is 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 what this is going to mean. Uh, uh, for 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 companies, um, so so here's one of the pieces that I think is really important that that the treaty stipulates that environmental impact assessments must be completed before any new exploitation of marine resources in areas that are beyond the national jurisdiction, so so-called international waters, and it also features provisions that allow for sharing knowledge, technologies, and benefits from marine genetic resources, which is how we you know, better understand the species that we're trying to protect. 
And these, these elements may be used in products ranging from food supplements and cosmetics to life-saving medicine. So there, this is a, a, you know, we don't, when we hear about these UN treaties, uh, with a possible exception of climate treaties, where there's a lot uh, of understanding about what the business implications are, we don't always understand what the business uh, implications are of, of some of these. And I think that uh, as we get, uh, as we as we come to understand more and more of this, um, we'll begin to realize how broadly this is going to uh, impact companies across a, a range of sectors. And of course, as I said, you know, it's still got to be uh, ratified by countries. And, you know, in the United States, that's probably not going to happen soon, mm-hmm. but hopefully will eventually. Yeah. I think for me, this was so exciting to me when I read about it, um, just because- As a longtime diver, as you I are. I know. I just was so, I, it made me really happy. I, there was a couple things that leapt out at me from the piece, which in my climate tech coverage have, this has a lot of relevance for. So number one is we do have a lot of companies right now exploring ocean carbon capture. So this will have absolute implications for those companies, as well as we know deep deep water mining, deep seabed mining, um, as, as different supply chains look to guarantee their supply of minerals and metals, um, that this will have huge implications for that. If again, if it's ratified, one of the figures that really leapt out at me is is if this is part of the sort of the the overall theme of preserving 30% of land and sea by 2030 which is part of um one of the biodiversity commitments that that the UN holds dear i, I this figure floored me only 1.2% only 1.2% of international waters have protected status so like we've got a long way to go on that 30%. I don't know if it's 30% of all land and sea like or 30% of the ocean and 30% of land. I don't know how that applies um, because we know the ocean is much more expansive than the land that we have on Earth. So yeah, much to, to parse here. We will have some um, follow-up as well. So exciting. This week marks the three-year anniversary of where we all were when the shutdown happened from the pandemic back in 2000. It's also uh, just recently commemorated the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. It seems like a good time to take stock and look at what's all this led to for companies and and energy markets and all of that, and to check in with our friend James Murray, editor-in-chief of Business Green in London. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make a case here that that some of the uh, challenges that we've seen from the war and from the pandemic have actually had a benefit to sustainability. So the energy crisis uh, laid bare our unsustainable reliance on oil and natural gas from unfriendly nations. Uh, we've we've led to the ramping up of of homegrown energy sources, particularly wind and, and solar and storage. Um, the the spiking of of gas and petrol prices uh, have accelerated the uptake of electric vehicles. Uh, supply chain shortages have led to some logistics efficiencies. So, uh, you know, do, is that a rosy scenario here, or are you seeing that maybe some of there are some benefits that actually have come out of all this? It's it's a really difficult topic to discuss, isn't it? Because the first thing you say is you don't, you don't really want to be talking about silver linings 
around you know two of the most traumatic events in in modern history and of course the the war in ukraine still very much ongoing and could get a lot worse before it gets better and, and lots of reasons to be deeply concerned with that um however if you sort of take a dispassionate look at the energy markets and kind of the the net zero transition and some of the things that have happened um in the wake of first the pandemic and and then the war in ukraine there has been i hesitate to say in any way good news but some of the bad things that were predicted haven't happened so you know with the pandemic one of the initial responses was you have all these lockdowns and then you get all this pent-up demand that will follow and you'll see this huge spike in emissions that will follow. And while emissions did climb back up in the wake of um, the, the sort of the recovery from the pandemic, they didn't get kind of turbocharged in the way that many people were fearing. And some of the changes that happened in during that pandemic, things like more working from home, um, and the like, and 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 arguably a slightly better, you know, appreciation of nature and all those other things that people talked about do seem to have become a little bit embedded. And we we have some evidence to suggest there's been some sort of positive outcomes from that. And then the really big one is is the impact of you know the war in Ukraine. And there's there's no denying that when Putin went into this um, this this illegal invasion, this 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 horrible endeavour, um, he was working on the assumption that he'd be able to sort of weaponize gas supplies to Europe in particular um, and chip away at the support of Ukraine through the kind of economic harm that would come. And, you know, that hypothesis from him does seem to to date to have been proven wrong. You know, there was this big spike in energy costs, um, but we haven't seen the kind of anticipated um, a sort of fracturing of the coalition in support of Ukraine from a geopolitical perspective. But then also from an energy perspective, uh, the IEA had a report out um, just uh, last week, I think, sort of saying, well, there just hasn't been this kind of post-invasion spike in emissions that was that was predicted. Uh, and that's because the the kind of turbocharging of renewables, electric vehicles, and particularly energy efficiency measures in Europe meant that the kind of the, the emissions, the increase in emissions last year was much, much lower than many people feared. So yeah, there has been a sort of a, a bit of a step change in the clean energy transition triggered by these two you know uh, deeply traumatic events yeah so that's the macro view let's let's zoom in a little bit at the company level uh, what do you think the effect has been from what you've seen in in the U- uk and the european union on uh, of the pandemic and the war in ukraine on how companies are approaching, and of course, that's even those things aren't in isolation because there's a whole ESG, either the the growth or the blowback, and the politicalization or weaponization of ESG. A lot of things going on that are affecting companies. But is this has this really uh, had a a significant impact, or is it just sort of a continuation of what had always been coming? I think it has. I think it has had a significant impact. I think, arguably, not so much the pandemic. I think there's a weird thing going on with the pandemic where um, we all, all of our incentives are aligned to kind of memory hole the whole thing because it was just so traumatic that there does seem to be this 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 sort of desire to stick our heads straight back in the sand and go, you know, that was a horrible two years. Let's hope it never happens again. And we haven't necessarily seen the kind of step changes that you'd like to think we should have seen. Um, in supply chain resilience, in our understanding of biological threats um, and the like. But the I think the war in Ukraine and the impact on energy markets really has been a, a, a significant tipping point in a lot of companies thinking because it, the, the, you know, the impact's been so obvious. I mean, energy prices in the UK 
Um, if the government hadn't stepped in with its support package, we're, we're on track to increase four, fivefold. Um, you know, absolutely crippling increases for 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 households, but also, of course, for many, many businesses, um, even even businesses that weren't necessarily energy intensive. You know, that's a huge bite out of your bottom line if you start seeing costs going up that much. Um, so there's been this and, and at the same time, there's been this sort of there's been this kind of alternative path mapped out that says, you know, if you do invest in energy efficiency, if you do deploy renewables and PPAs, um, and and other measures, you can reduce your exposure to those costs and to those risks. And by the way, also, you know, do your bit in pushing back against what Putin's trying to achieve. So I think there really has been a, a kind of shift in thinking as to how central the clean energy transition is to, you know, bolstering energy security, enhancing your competitiveness um, and the like. And then the other thing that I think is really driving that home at the moment is there's a huge amount of talk in the UK and in the EU about the impact of what Biden's done with the Inflation Reduction Act. I think sort of every week that passes, the significance of the uh, the scale of that subsidy program. And I was talking to somebody who works in the chemicals industry uh, earlier this week, and they were saying the other thing about it is the simplicity of the subsidies program. It's so like, you, you know, you reduce this amount of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, or you in, you produce this amount of green hydrogen, here's your, here's your pavement, here's your tax break. And, you know, financial directors, big companies making decisions on where to place their next plant, absolutely love that. They love that simplicity. Uh, whereas a lot of the subsidy programs in the in the EU and the UK are much more complicated. Um, mu you know, they're not as kind of clear cut as to how long they'll last. Um, so the the, the pressure so on top of the kind of the war in Ukraine pressure and the energy industry pressure, you've also suddenly got this kind of green subsidy arms race going on. And all of that coming together does seem to have pushed the topic up the agenda at a time when when the invasion first started and when the pandemic first started, the sort of the, the hypothesis was all this topic would be pushed down the corporate agenda. Yeah. Well, it's a little weird to be uh, hearing that, uh, that Europe may be looking to, to the United States as a, as a leader on, on the regulatory side uh, or, or the, the public policy side. But where do you think this goes in the, uh, during the, let's just say, the rest of 2023? Uh, real quickly here, uh, in Europe, from a company perspective, what changes? Um, I think it's going to be more of the same, just bigger and faster, basically. So I think there's 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 a, a dawning realization that the the war in Ukraine doesn't look like. I mean, obviously, very very difficult to predict, but it doesn't look like there's a resolution coming quickly. So everyone seems to sort of recognize that we're locked into a period of potentially high energy prices for quite some time to come. That means the the incentive for you know, further investment in renewables, further investment in energy efficiency continues. Um, as I say, the, the EU has said it will respond to the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think that's going to be, that will be another big story throughout the year. You'll start to see some of the EU's promise of increased support on green manufacturing um, and other, and hydrogen and carbon capture and storage coming to fruition. So we'll see more action on that front. Um, the UK, a little bit now we've left the EU, is a little bit stuck in the middle there. And the government is sort of debating kind of like, well, how do we compete? How do we do something similar? But obviously, without the same deep pockets that the US has. So I think we'll see more progress in terms of maybe sort of the policy environment, innovation funding, things that maybe cost a little bit less. Um, but I think, and, and there'll also be a lot of pressure to try and get the continent into a position where its energy supplies are really robust going into next winter. Because the because the 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 slightly the less upbeat uh, side of this analysis is that 
the the kind of the coalition in support of Ukraine has remained solid up to now. But if we go into another winter and this time maybe we don't get quite as lucky with with energy security and um, Putin continues to weaponize those those gas supplies, uh, then there's the fear that that maybe you've got a problem. So, you know, getting everything in, getting the ducks in a row in terms of actually securing the gas, securing the renewables and continuing to improve energy efficiency and bring down energy use uh, will be you know, an ongoing uh, focus. More of the same, but uh, bigger, faster seems to be a, a great mantra for the for the coming months. James Murray is editor in chief of Business Green in London. James, we'll talk again next month. Thanks so much. Cool. Thanks, Joe. Hello, Green Biz Three Fifty Podcast Community. This is Grant Harrison, director for Sustainable Finance and ESG with Green Biz Group. The sustainable finance space is in the midst of the largest policy transition it has yet seen, and this is, of course, just the beginning. I had a conversation last week with David Carlin, who leads programs for banks and investors with the TCFD, that's the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. We talked about how he's viewing this pivotal year given his work with global financial institutions on climate modeling, climate scenario analysis, climate opportunities, and importantly, regulatory developments. I started by asking him about how he thinks the financial system's plumbing needs to change to focus on long-term value and who exactly the proper plumbers are. I I would say with the context here is we need a whole systems change and we need systems. Finance is key. This is where the Paris Agreement Article 2C talks about making financial flows consistent with this well below two degree, now 1.5 degree aligned world. But we also need actions from governments. We need that to be both on the supervisory and financial policy side, but also on the elected policy side around tax and spending, around also how consumer behavior is changing. So we do need a full systems approach here. What does that mean? It means for finance, and you hear this very often, we provide financing to the real economy. And that means that if the real economy is transitioning, finance can be the accelerant. If the real economy is stagnating, finance is not necessarily going to be the source of change in and of itself. And that's kind of the arguments that the financial sector has taken. What I would push on is to say that doesn't really relate the interconnections between finance and government, between finance and the real economy. There are things that the financial sector can do to push on those other levers. And I think a key one that you hit on is around policy and around where is that political voice being uh, being used. And a good example of this is in the US with the SEC rule on climate disclosures. There's been a lot of pushback, especially uh, in red states and especially uh, on the corporate side from these enhanced reporting requirements. On the other hand, when we're talking about needing this information to make better decisions, to better price climate risks, and to accelerate the transition, this is information we need. And so we really need to be not only walking the walk and talking the talk, but making sure that the two aren't competing with each other. And so a lot of the work that has gone on in the net zero alliances, as well as work that is going on through 
initiatives around transition planning is about making, as I said before, about finance being consistent with the Paris Agreement. It's making lobbying consistent with that pathway as well. And so what are the types of initiatives, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the Fit for 55 plan in Europe, similar policies? What are the things that are going to provide the wind in the sails of private capital? And what are going to be the things that are blockers? And really asking people to be transparent and saying, you can't reap the benefits from a PR standpoint, from a reputational standpoint, from an opportunity standpoint of being a net zero institution if your policy is behind closed doors, if your lobbying isn't going to help bring about that world. And so your responsibilities don't end at the end of the financial system. They feed into the dialogues and conversations that finance has with government, and it feeds into the incentives and structuring that finance has with its clients in the real economy. And I think that's the place where I see finance sitting and where making sure those other efforts are aligned, both on client engagement and on lobbying, are so critical to actually delivering the things that finance says now that it wants to attain. First of all, thank you for uh, reframing the analogy from plumbing to levers. I think that's a more pleasant way to look at this. Um, One thing that you just touched on there, and to my understanding is a key part of your role, is providing guidance to financial institutions we're talking about here on key regulatory developments, focusing on the United States, just like an anecdote at our recent Green Biz event, hosting a a boot camp session on preparing for SEC disclosure and seeing, A, how many people raise their hand as to like, you know, maybe they don't have clarity on what the difference between the issuer and investor rule is. More than half the hands go up, like a lot of new people to this task and they're more focused than I've seen anybody in a breakout session, notepads out ready to capture every bit of information, which is awesome. Uh, focusing on the United States, can you share any consistent themes from your work with banks and investors that either one demonstrates regulatory readiness that makes you feel like something auspicious is coming up, or two, given the speed at which this has moved and the complexity behind it, indicates some speed bumps that may lie ahead that uh, we're not kind of noticing at this point? Yeah, it, that, that that's a that's a, a great thing to cover, and maybe in a effort to give a a two for one or a buy one, get one. I'll I'll say both. And I think the first part is on the regulatory readiness. The industry overall across the world, uh, more so in places where regulatory activity has heated up earlier. So in Europe, in parts of Asia, in Canada, but in really a uniform way, the knowledge about climate, the quality of climate reporting has increased and improved by leaps and bounds. The work of the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures that initially promulgated a framework for those disclosures back in 2017, did a five-year report as part of its annual report last year. And just looking at the number of disclosures being made, we're talking about growth in leaps and bounds of over 4,000 entities reporting, but also in terms of the detail and quality of these reports. And I think it's illustrative looking at an organization that has made disclosures since 2018, since 2019, and really seeing how those have evolved, the frequency of the use of scenario analysis, the interest and efforts in quantification, the senior level engagement uh, and involvement. All of those, I think, are immensely promising signs. I think they are evidence not only of the mainstreaming of this issue, but of a greater understanding. And yet, unfortunately, I think we're still much closer to the beginning than to the end. And the reason I say that is when it comes to creating 
what the TCFD set out to create, which was a more efficient market because climate risk needs to be better priced, because climate opportunities need to be more effectively seized. We're still only seeing from the number of academic studies that I've read, and we're actually undertaking a few with a, a number of research partners as well. We've seen only tentative signals in terms of pricing. We've seen some in certain industries and in certain places, but fundamentally, I think few will say that climate risk is being priced in. And more so than that, few will say that investors and those who are allocators of capital have the information they need about climate to make effective decisions. And that, I think, speaks to one of the key roadblocks ahead whether you're moving on to climate stress testing from disclosure or whether you're really just trying to fully integrate climate into risk management, which is to say, how do we go from being reporters of climate and climate risks to being active users of this information? Part of this is really going beyond completeness as an indicator of quality and quality in terms of the goodness of a plan, in terms of the effectiveness of the actions. And we're not yet at that point. I think the analogy I give most frequently is about annual reports and financial statements. It is now expected in many cases in many jurisdictions by law that firms submit an annual report. That is necessary and firms clearly have fudged numbers before, have gotten in trouble for accounting irregularities. And we know that those things are bad and we know the absence of those things and the completeness is good. But that is a very different prospect from saying this firm will continue to be a viable business, this firm is growing. And so we need to begin moving, I think, as financial actors, but really across the whole economy, from the reporters to the users of this information. I think this is a place where uptake still remains too slow, which is now that you've done that bang up TCFD report, now that you've participated in the Fed's scenario exercise, or OSFI's scenario exercise in Canada, or one of the exercises with a, a European um, part of your business, how are you really making this live? How are you making this not just standalone for the exercise, but really something that integrates with your activities? And how are you looking at this in a comparable and standardized way to your peers, as well as to your clients to be able to say, this client fits well into our strategy and our commitment. This one is going to need some help transitioning. This one, we don't really see a viable pathway for. And I think it's those hard discussions that actually are the tougher and yet more important ones than just completeness. Did you tick all of the 11 TCFD disclosures? Did you meet all of the expectations that were set forth in such and such scenario exercise? You've just heard from David Carlin, Head of Climate Risk and TCFD with the United Nations Environment Program Finance Initiative. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll learn more about the organization, stories, and other things we've mentioned this week, including the uh, uh, link to uh, nominate one of the 30 under 30s for the class of 2023. While you're over there, also check out our free weekly newsletters. we got about eight of them now, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. Our address is 350 at greenbiz.com. We always welcome your comments, questions, and tips, so please hit us up there. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. 
This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services, where a commitment to sustainability means delivering innovative solutions every day. Learn how AWS is accelerating change at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. And this episode is sponsored by Schneider Electric. Alleviate frustrations in ESG data management and reporting with Resource Advisor, Insights for Impact. For more information, please visit resourceadvisor.com.